This is the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. And now your host, Avi Kravitz. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. My name is Avi Kravitz. I'm the Senior Analyst and News Editor for Rappaport News. Um, today, our guest is David Block, um, who is the CEO of Serene Technologies. Um, welcome to you, David. Hi, Avi. Nice to be with you and the listeners. Um, great to have you, and thanks for joining us. How have you been? How's, um, how are you personally um, managing through the, uh, this um, COVID-19 crisis or lockdown period that we've all experienced? Actually, on, on the personal level, I must say it's been a, an interesting experience and in many ways a good one due to the fact that uh, we've been working from home a lot of the time. Uh, it's provided uh, you know, a unique opportunity uh, to be you know, at home, spend more time with the kids and the family. Whereas a lot of the time I'm traveling around the world. Uh, so, you know, not to travel anywhere for the last five months is, I would say, a welcome change. And um, trying to take advantage of the fact that I am at home and uh, spend as much as I can with the, with the kids. And uh, I mean, on the personal level, I, we're doing what, uh, what we can. And um, as I said, I think uh, overall doing quite well. It's good to hear. I always quote you when people would ask you where you're from, you your standard answer was seat 4C on any given international flight, given that you, you, you travel so much as, as do so many other executives within the, the diamond industry. Um, so I, I would imagine it's a, it's, it's a welcome change for you. Most definitely. And from a professional level, how, how is Sarin um, doing? What adjustments have you made uh, through this period on a company level? You know, so... As I always say to you know people who ask us how we're doing, and my more standard answer is that we're we're a very good reflection of the industry because we're involved in so many of the the parts of the industry. Uh, generally, whatever is going on in the industry reflects directly to us. And you know, as everyone knows, the industry is going through a challenging time, basically in all segments of the industry, right from the producers uh, through the manufacturers and down to the retail. Um, so definitely a challenging period for us uh, on one hand. On the other hand, I think it's um, very interesting period because it opens up a lot of uh, opportunities um, that the current crisis is actually putting out there and putting the spotlight on. Mm. Well, I mean, you do work with companies across the pipeline from the mining sector to manufacturers as maybe you're most well known um, in providing um, equipment for the, for the manufacturing sector, but then also on the retail side, you're working with them and I mean, we've participated in various panels together before in previous interviews that, and discussions that I've had with you in the past. You've spoken very strongly about the need to, to make the market more efficient. Um, you know, and so there's kind of a feeling now that, that Sarin is positioned to in, for this moment that uh, the coronavirus is maybe accelerating the digitization of, of the diamond market and, and bringing, using technology um, to bring greater efficiencies to, to the diamond industry. So are you seeing changes? Are you seeing those changes take effect as a result of COVID-19? Yes, yeah, so most definitely. I think um, the changes that are at the more at the level that people are starting to understanding that we are living in, in a different world than it was 20 years ago, and the consumer is very digital today. And if you want to serve the consumer as a retailer or, or anywhere in the pipeline, um, that's part of today's world of, of being more digital. And, you know, that's what we've been doing for the last many years. Um, and definitely the COVID situation, as I said, has put a big spotlight on that. 
and in many ways is accelerating processes that have been happening um, over the last years, uh, slowly and maybe a little bit underground uh, in many ways. Um, and it's put, uh, put in the spotlight and accelerating them um, a lot. Um, I think another one of the things that we're seeing is changing is that um, the fear of, of utilizing technology, of adapting technology, and how it can actually add value is also in many ways um, dissipating because of, of COVID, uh, because of the fact that you know, many people have to use technology, whether it's to communicate like we're doing now, uh, or whether it's uh, to do a, a virtual exhibition, or whether it's to contact the clients uh, as a retailer or, or others. So technology, I think, coming more user-friendly in terms of perception. Um, and I think that's also very important that people understand that, you know, technology, it's here, it's here to stay. It's going to be a bigger part of our lives. Um, and we need to see how to, to utilize in ways that can really add value to what we're doing. So, I mean, are you seeing an increase in interest from companies to, to use your, your programs or, or maybe just from a consultancy point of view to see you can help them? I mean, it's one thing for companies to, for the fear to have dissipated, but it's another to take action and, and, and actually embrace technology in that way. Yes, I actually have, have a lot of examples. I'll, I'll give you one that's actually been very, very relevant for, for the last few months. We've been for quite a while now working with, uh, with Alrosa, which is the, the world's largest, at least by volume, uh, diamond producer on an ability to uh, sell rough digitally. Uh, this, of course, started long before COVID. And the first uh, public uh, steps were actually taken last year in, in 2019, in October, when La Rosa introduced their first digital tender. Um, as I said, long before COVID uh, was in the cards. And between October and February, uh, there'd been a multiple tenders uh, that had been done digitally um, on one hand. On the other hand, people had still physically come to see the goods, touch the goods, um, I'd say in the old-fashioned way. That's what people are used to. And that's how they continue to do so, even though that uh, the digital tenders were already made available. Um, one of the interesting things we saw in March, April, May was that because of the fact that there were limitations on travel, people couldn't travel. And therefore, we could actually really see the real capabilities of a digital um, tender of RAF. It actually provided us a very uh, unique test case uh, with something that had started long before COVID. And COVID actually enabled us to really test it in a real life uh, circumstances and, um, and prove that you actually can use solutions that are digital only and get very, very good results um, um, and not lose out anything, actually add value, not having to travel, not having to actually physically go see the goods and the ability to get a much wider and broader range of relevant clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was such prophetic timing. <laughs> the, the, the deal with El Rose, I think, was around September, was it September or November last year? Um, to enable or to work with enable uh, with El Rose to bring about those um, digital tenders, and now we're seeing that um, that's the most effective way, or maybe the only way that RAF can be sold in, in this in this period. Can you maybe just explain what Sarin is um, is providing El Rosa? What is your role in that in facilitating those digital tenders? So our role is basically using both existing and actually technologies that we're working together with Arosa uh, to enable them uh, to provide a fully digital tender. In other words, rather than having to go, as I said, an old-fashioned uh, way, get on a flight, fly down to Moscow, um, get to downtown Moscow, which I'm not sure how many people do that, but it, it's a feat in itself. 
and then uh, uh, look at the rough, decide what you want to buy. And in many cases, understand that you have no rough that's relevant for you. This enables uh, Alrosa to utilize the technologies to scan the rough diamonds in different parameters uh, and different technologies and provide that information uh, to their clients not only to a small number of clients, which is generally what is possible if you want to physically view because there's not enough time for everyone to see the goods and the ability for everyone to see everything is difficult, but uh, it provides also the ability to provide all their clients and even additional clients if they want to um, the ability to check the goods, understand if those goods are suitable for them um, and meet the criteria that the manufacturer uh, is looking for and then be able to take a, a much more intelligent decision and bid on those goods uh, because you have a lot more data and a lot of more um, information in order to for you to take the right decision of what those goods are worth. So, I mean, that's in a nutshell uh, what we're doing. And again, we're using both existing technologies as well as working with our roster on things that are uh, also uh, more unique to them. Right. I mean, do you think this, um, I mean, obviously, Arosa was looking at it um, last year already, but I think it was for more specific sort of specific goods, not necessarily a whole gambit of, um, of production. Do you think that um, having had this experience of, of COVID and having to buy rough or look at rough remotely, that it'll, it'll stick? You know, that uh, this is, is this the future of rough buying or will we get back to a situation where, you know, when things normalize again, that people will still, still prefer to see the goods in person? So first of all, I think in, in the long term, no doubt it will stick. Uh, and uh, I'll also, even during the process, uh, increased the scope of the goods at some point in time. I think it was somewhere around February or March. They added the larger sizes, the 10.8 plus special goods to, to the process. Um, so they were doing quite a wide range of the good in, in fairly large quantities. And yes, I do believe it's, it's, it's where the, the world is going. Will, after COVID, this be the, the norm? Most likely there will be a transition period. It does take time for people to understand how technology can be utilized and what the value is. And we've seen that with all our different technologies over the years, that it takes time to, to assimilate and to prove the value to the client and for them to understand how it provides them with that value. But once that happens, then there's no going back. And we'll see that that scenario, I believe, also in, in rough trading and rough uh, sales as well. In my perspective, on a much wider and broader way than just, you know, Al Rosa, uh, we can see that De Beers is doing a similar thing with its own goods. And I'm sure we'll see, uh, without going into details, other producers that are doing the same today. Mm. It sounds like something that the big mining companies can afford to um, to invest in, in these technologies. Um, but what about smaller companies along the pipeline? How accessible is, and I think particularly for manufacturers, uh, how accessible is is adopting technology to improve their efficiencies in buying and selling polished is that something that they're um, as ready to bring into their businesses? So look at the longer term. Um, basically, all technologies that we've introduced in the end have been able to trickle down to the smallest of the users, whether it's been our planning technology or galaxy technology or traceability in the end. The ability to, to get that technology to the smallest of the players has always been an objective ours. Uh, we don't want to stick just with the big, give the big players that advantage you know, provide a level playing field for everyone. If I just take an example of the, of the Galaxy technology, actually the first step was setting up service centers, which still exist today in, in nine centers, rough uh, centers around the world, 
um, that we have centers that if you only have one diamond, you can bring it to us, you can get it scanned uh, with no capital equipment investment. And that enables basically everyone to play um, on a level playing field. And the same goes, I think, with all our technologies, both in the past and looking forward, we want to make it accessible to everyone. It's not just for the big uh, players that have the capabilities and the capital to invest in technology. Right. Um, okay. I mean, actually, that's also been a, a part of our transition. If you look over the last 10 years of um, rather than just we don't selling equipment, which is uh, maybe how we were viewed upon and how we were known up until, you know, the 2010 uh, period. But from that point on, we've been evolving into into much more of a service provider, enabling basic providing services to, to the smallest of players. Right. There's a definite sense that, and I think it's across all industries, that any trends um, or sort of digit, digitize, digitizing trends that were taking effect in the economy has been accelerated. And I would agree with, agree with you that I think the industry, this has been a, a wake up call from that point of view, um, you know, in terms of um, accelerating the use of technology in the diamond pipeline. Although, and I think you've made the point before that there's this perception that the diamond industry is kind of a late adapter of, or, of technology, but actually it's quite tech savvy, I think. Um, would you agree with me that that you are seeing that historically we, or at least in the last decade, we have seen a an embracing of technology um, within the within the industry? Yes, no doubt about it. I think it's it's different for different segments of the industry. Note that the manufacturing segment has embraced technology very very aggressively over the last decade or two, both Serene's technologies as well as others. Um, I think there are other segments of the industry that need to do more and need to do it faster, especially looking uh, at the retail side, make the, the retail a lot more up to date with, with, with technology and today's consumer. But I think actually the biggest challenge is, is how the industry actually integrates technology from end to end of the pipeline. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges. We've got a number of projects that we're doing on, on that aspect of how do you actually create efficiencies along the pipeline and not just at specific points on the pipeline. Mm. Um, can you give me an example of how you would um, connect from mine through manufacturing to, to retail? And then I would like to pick up on your, on your retail point, but how do you create those efficiencies and, and maybe give an example of what you're working on and bring it about? So maybe I can give you two examples. One actually spans uh, you know, the, the entire pipeline from the mine all the way down to consumer is, is of course, um, a subject that's been talked about a lot over the last uh, couple of years. And there are a number of uh, players, some of them uh, very significant players involved, which is, of course, traceability. Uh, one of the main projects that we're doing these days is providing a traceability solution all the way from the mine through uh, the different players along the pipeline, all the way down to the retailer and, and actually the consumer itself. But unlike uh, what has been done uh, for many years uh, through a system of uh, chain of custody or systems of warrants by using uh, declarations, by actually using technology and actually technology that is already existing in the pipeline, uh, our technology that we have basically spread out over the last 30 years and exists within the pipeline, levering that technology in order to provide an additional added value and additional service to our clients, uh, which, which is traceability. So, so that's one example which I can you know, give how you actually need to integrate many, many different players and many, many different processes uh, throughout the pipeline together in order to create uh, um, an added value. 
The second example I can give is actually another very significant project that we're working on for, for several years is, is our e-grading project, which is how do you basically take the aspect of grading information about uh, the polished diamond that starts at the end of manufacturing, actually, and then goes through a number of different processes before and entities before it actually reaches the consumer. And, and our developments over the last years of being able to put technology at the source, which is actually at the retailer, enable grading through technology, which at the large majority is still done manually today, um, but through technology at the source and creating very, very uh, significant efficiencies because it's not just the cost of the grading report. You need to take in consideration that goods that are sent out for grading, there's the cost of money um, that uh, is involved. There's additional costs such as shipping, insurance, and so on and so forth. There's the uh, inability of the, the customer to set its own priorities. Once you send out the grading, you can't decide that you want them, these goods to be done first and those afterwards. So um, I would call it your, um, how comfortable are you or how uh, um, efficient it is for you. And there's a lot of soft values that actually, if you try and quantify them, they're actually very, very significant. And, and that can create, again, a lot of efficiencies, not just by creating more accurate, more repeatable uh, grading, but actually solve a lot of the inefficiencies that are in the pipeline of the amount of time it takes to get that polished diamond once manufactured actually to the market. And again, we're seeing, we're seeing examples at the moment where, where that would be relevant because there, there are delays in shipping goods um, at the moment um, for, for grading. And uh, I guess, again, it's, it's kind of uh, highlighting what, the work that you've been doing. The, the e-grading announcement you made came just at the beginning of the crisis as um, lockdown started to come into effect. And so how has that affected your rollout of the e-grading program? Um, yeah, we actually started our campaign uh, probably a week or so, uh, a week or two before, uh, before the lockdown uh, started. And we've been, you know, uh, working, continue, we've been continuing actually all our R&D without any changes other than the fact that most of the people are at home other than our hardware engineers who, who come to our labs to continue their projects. But we're continuing our R&D unhindered uh, at this point in time. And actually it's working very well. And, you know, we're thinking also about how do we approach the subject from working at home in the longer term as well. And we're doing an internal uh, analysis uh, these days. Um, so on the development side, we've had no uh, delays and it's actually enabled us to be very much more focused on what we're doing. Uh, so it's actually progressing maybe even in many uh, ways uh, faster than, than, than it would be without the COVID. On the other hand, on the business side, no doubt, uh, you know, the clients, uh, whether they're the retailers, the manufacturers and the producers, everyone has, I think, their own, uh, their own problems to take care of. So on the business side, um, no doubt that that will delay uh, things a little bit until the market gets back to some level of a, of a new norm, a new normal. But that's the situation and uh, we're trying uh, you know, to do as much as we can, um, at least on the R&D side, waiting for the market to get back to business and then we can pick up from where we started. Having said that, we've been having a lot of discussions uh, with uh, many players in the market, um, especially the high-end uh, um, retailers who view traceability and, and such projects with a very high level of importance. Um, so a lot of the clients actually have a lot of time on their hands and have been able to dive quite deeply into, into these subjects and understand them much better. Mm. I mean, for on the e-grading um, point, um, for an industry that's, I mean, on the one hand, it's as we mentioned, it's embraced technology, but on the other, it also has a certain traditional element to it. You know, what does um, e-grading, as you foresee it, mean for the future of uh, gemology, of the grading labs and the physical grading labs, um, which are big 
employers within the industry and are a big part of the industry psyche. So, so I think we actually need to differentiate uh, between two words that you use, the gemologists and the graders. Gemologists is a very high level of understanding about the gemology of diamonds. It's not a grade. Grader is actually a fairly uh, simple task. And in today's grading labs generally have very specific tasks. You grade color or you grade clarity or you do a certain process. They have a very uh, limited range of, of know-how and knowledge and do a very, very specific task. And that's how most grading labs work today. And so those are the graders. And no doubt that these tasks that the graders are doing will over time be replaced by technology. And so you may not have a grader, you maybe have a, an operator that sits on a technology, is able to do a much uh, more significant uh, quantity of diamonds in a much more uh, repeatable and accurate way. Uh, so no doubt that I think that if you look down the road, grading labs as they exist today are going to change dramatically. The era of sending a diamond to get graded, the stopwatch has already started. Um, and it's just a matter of time for that to happen. Um, and I believe that you know any grading lab that really uh, wants to continue to um, uh, provide services to their clients will, uh, over time, uh, shift to technology, just as has happened, by the way, over the last 20 years. There's a lot of technology in, in today's grading labs and uh, is used in the grading labs. If you look just the two C's, uh, cut and, and carrot weight, are, are basically done by technology uh, today. One of them being a scale, of course, for weight. The second being uh, one of our technologies that we were the first introduced in the world for grading cut. Um, so it's just natural that uh, over a period of time, color and clarity came along. Change that we, uh, we're seeing is not just introducing technology, but solving inefficiencies in the pipeline by not having to have a physical grading lab. Put that grading lab at the source, at the manufacturer, at the wholesaler, uh, so that all the inefficiencies that are creative are having to send those goods outside of the factory are actually alleviated. And I think that's one of the major parts of, of what we see in this e-grading. It's not just the use of technology, but actually changing the paradigm of how grading is done. But, but then the, the retailer um, kind of needs that, party that third-party verification uh, that... Or, or, logo, so to speak, or stamp of, or certificate that, that says this diamond was, was graded by X, Y, or Z, or, or Z company. Is that still, does that, does that eliminate, does the e-grading eliminate that, or is it e-grading powered by a siren that gives the retailer the promise um, that the diamond has been reliably graded as a, you know, according to the parameters that, um, or, or is it the, or is it a reliance on the manufacturer that um, that they that it's now shifting to them by that quality mark? So, so in the end, I think it's, it's a very very good question. I think in the end, the retailer or the consumer, which is the retailer is its representative, will need to answer that question. Does a third part is a third party required? My feeling is probably yes. Uh, at least if you look in the next uh, ten years. But that third party uh, could be based on, on technology. Um, as you said, we, we call it powered by Serene with the, with the Intel inside. A lot of the retail, and that, the reason that I say that is because a lot of the retail today, and maybe this is a totally different discussion, the seminars on the subject of most retailers want to put their brand up in front. That's what's important. That's what uh, they want to create their own brand. Um, so we look at the grading report as, as a tool uh, for the retailer, as, as something that adds value to him. But isn't something that needs to be up in front. So I think the retailer needs to decide how important that third party um, aspect is. Um, we don't see it as something that uh, convinced that we need to be that third party. 
if the retailer wants it, we're that party. If they want us to be more behind the scenes, we're that Intel inside. So we're very flexible on that side. But what we're not flexible on is making sure that data and information that we provide through our technologies is consistent and accurate and cannot be manipulated in any way. And that's where we put it, most of our efforts to make sure that the retailer can be convinced and assured that the information that is being provided to him is sound. So whether they need third-party stamp or not, I think that's a question maybe you can ask one of the retailers uh, in one of your next podcasts. Right. Um, but, but it does uh, it bring us back to that question of the retail sector um, embracing technology. And um, you mentioned earlier that that's maybe one area that uh, you look at the pipeline that, that, that maybe the re- retail is lagging. And when you said that, my thought immediately was in how they're using technology to sell to consumers. But you brought in another aspect is in how retailers are using technology to source goods and then using that source to enhance their end sale. I would imagine that they're connected in in various ways. Yes, yes. Uh, You know, uh, I think that's another one of the areas of inefficiencies that can be clearly, um, you can put your finger on within the industries is the flow of polished goods between the supply side to the demand side. Um, and that, that by itself is a, is a very, very ineffective uh, process if you compare it to other industries. There's a lot of goods existing in the pipeline that are not creating value, that are not being sold, uh, so therefore they're not creating any value. And how do you actually connect up much more efficiently between the sell side and the buy side uh, when you talk about polished diamonds in, in a similar way, maybe what we discussed earlier with, with Ruff, uh, we believe that there's a lot of areas that you can increase efficiencies over there through technology. And, and I'll give you one example. And um, today, a grading report provides you with fairly basic information uh, between a buyer and seller that enables you to understand, is this uh, polished diamond something that more or less is what you're looking for? But then what happens after that stage that you have the basic four C's and maybe a few other parameters like symmetry and fluorescence and so onwards, uh, you have a, a secondary process that the buyer now is going to check, does it meet the criteria of the retailer? And now that retailer, because that retailer has very specific criteria that it's looking for, no black points on the table, no open cracks, and so on and so forth, uh, no milkiness and, 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 and all sorts of other different parameters that they uh, would like to define internally in order to decide to buy the diamonds. Once you talk about uh, utilizing technology that now can provide a lot more than just you know, the basic four C's, you can start connecting up much more efficiently between the buy side and the sell side, which today is actually in order to overcome this problem, most uh, uh, buyers at a retail a retailer have maybe two, three, five different suppliers. Why? Because they've got to know what kind of goods that that retailer is looking for. And there's a, beyond the relationship, there's an understanding of what kind of goods they need. Think of what would happen if you could now open up to that retailer a much wider supply of goods that would enable the retailer to source it quicker, easier, um, times that he needs more goods to, to, to expand his uh, ability to source very, very much uh, uh, more simply. So you're opening both for the buy side as well as for the sell side, a much wider range of clients when you're able to communicate with much more detailed information that is created through technology. So I think we're going to see also on the sourcing side of polished diamonds, a very uh, dramatic change on, on how diamonds are sourced. And that will also change, I think, how diamonds are traded between the manufacturing uh, supply side to the retailer um, uh, who sits on, on, uh, in front of the consumer. Mm. And we talk about those efficiencies. And generally, like when I'm giving my a presentation, I, I would mention this trend. And, and it would be in the context of the inventory levels within the midstream. And so if, 
the retail um, side is is getting is being more efficient in its sourcing, then there's more of a burden on the midstream to hold inventory, and that's costly. It's uh, we've seen that uh, it would create a supply glut um, or a bottleneck in the supply chain. So I mean, either it would need a, a fairly painful transition period, which maybe we're going through. Maybe this is the COVID opportunity. Or yeah, to in, in order to enable those efficiencies, that it will, it's going to take some teething pains for the midstream in particular, and maybe even the mining sector. So actually, I think uh, uh, you say it will take. I think the last couple of years, the industry is going through those pains. The problem is you need to come up with a solution how to alleviate them. And so I think we're already in that situation that. Most of the burden is borne by the midstream and whether it's a memo house sitting in New York, that's still basically the midstream, it's not the retail, uh, or whether it's a supplier in Israel or India, most of the, the goods are held by the midstream. Um, so that is the current situation today. How do you now create a situation? And, and I think the retailers are going to want to hold less and less inventory. That's been a process that's been happening over the last few years, that retailers hold less and less of their own inventory, asset goods. And, and I don't see that changing dramatically. How can you now create a situation where the retailer is able to source his goods quickly and efficiently on one hand? And on the other hand, the supply side have a much wider and broader um, um, client base that it can sell to without having to create over a long period of time and a very challenging process that trust that you know exactly what that retailer needs and now you're going to send him exactly what he needs because you've learned over the last couple of years his tastes are and what he likes and what he doesn't like. If you could now resolve those two issues, I think it's a win-win both for the retailer who can source goods more efficiently and both for the sell side who can actually sell their goods more efficiently. Um, so I think we're, we're in the middle, we're stuck at the moment and, and what we're looking to see is how we can help get out of this current situation. Right. Um, but then on the mining side, um, production is democratized. You know, you can't pick and choose what type of diamonds you want to bring out of bring out of a mine to satisfy the more specific demand that, that the retailer is shifting towards or trying to satisfy. Um, so at some point, I mean, either we're going in a situation where rough production needs to be dramatically lower and there's a higher threshold to maintain uh, mining operations, um, which I actually think that we are entering that phase now with the COVID um, situation, or there's just going to be this continued buildup of inventory, um, either at the mining sector or in the manufacturers. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, no doubt there will be a, somewhat of a, and I think we're going through some of that now, a, a painful period of, of reducing the levels of, of inventory and a lot of the dead inventory within the pipeline. And I think the challenge on the mining side, and, and I believe that we will see changes, we're already starting to see those changes. Um, the traditional ways of selling rough in, in parcels uh, to a limited number of people, I believe that that will change. And because I think the challenge of making that process more efficient is how do you get the right rough to the right person that needs that rough? Uh, today, that's not that efficient because you're getting a very limited amount of rough to a very limited number of people. We don't necessarily need all that rough and actually might need different rough or, or other rough or more quantities of a certain qu uh, quality of rough that it's receiving. And I think the challenge, uh, which is, you know, many of the players are trying to resolve. And I think one of the aspects of the digital tender of those is exactly that. How do I get the right rough to the right person? I mean, we, we started, I think, a year and a half ago with a, with a project with a Lucara um, producer, uh, the Clara project, which, which also talks about getting the right rough to the right client at the right price. 
um, so that he can manufacture the polished goods that he needs. And, and I believe that, you know, the industry is going to get more and more going that direction to manufacturing on demand rather than on, uh, than on, than on supply. Mm. The third option also, which is the ideal, is to really um, broaden the variety of product that is in demand at a consumer level. You know, that's the ultimate challenge of the industry. And I think um, companies like um, El Rosa is, is trying to market um, fluorescent diamonds, for example, is a, a move in the right direction in that sense. I wanted to um, just come back to a, a point that you made earlier, um, also which ties into the same idea of creating these efficiencies, um, but that's in terms of the traceability story. Um, we were on a panel um, together in, in Israel about this issue, and uh, it really focused on the, the benefit that companies can gain from being part of a, a traceable supply chain. But we actually, um, I, I was quite taken aback after that discussion, the number of people in the audience who were mainly smaller dealers and uh, smaller sort of one-man shows who felt that this was alienating them within the market, you know, that it was creating this sort of um, select group of companies that would be able to take part of this in this. Um, is that a real concern for people in the industry as the market shifts towards more traceability and really it's about being part of a branded product. When I think traceability, I think that it feeds into the sort of more brand-oriented companies. So let me start maybe with the long term. I think in the long term, the answer is no, because I think traceability will become a norm. And the reason I say that is because this is not something that the industry is inventing or the industry is trying to, to create something to create a brand about diamonds. This is a demand that starts off with the consumer and it comes from the consumer and it's not unique to our industry. You know, there's a lot of talk here today about sustainability and traceability is just to meet requirements or the demands of the consumer and the retailer for sustainability. So it's not something that's going to go away. So we can either ignore it and um, deal with the consequences, which means that our product, uh, a diamond or diamond jewelry, will become less attractive to the consumer and therefore lose market share to other luxury products, whether an iPad or a cruise, maybe a cruise is not so relevant these days, but other products that people are spending their, their luxury dollars on. Um, or we can adapt to the needs of the, the consumer and, and see how to do that in a way that's not going to dramatically impact uh, the industry. And, and I think that's the challenge that we have. How do we do it in a way that's not going to alienate uh, different segments of the industry, that we do it in a way that the industry can swallow, that it not uh, create too much commotion? And I think that's one of the, the challenges that, at least on the technological level, that we've been trying to, to, to deal with. How do we provide a technological solution for traceability without adding huge overheads and huge costs um, in order to do so? And that's been a big focus of what we're doing. And, and again, as I mentioned previously, the way we do that is we base the technology on a lot of the existing infrastructure that we have within the industry of our, our technologies over the last 30 years. So I think the more the industry comes together and discusses the subject and see how to do it in a way that can benefit the industry as a whole, the easier that transition process is going to be. I mean, without getting into, um, you know, one system is better than the other, but um, can multiple traceability programs coexist in the, you know, the various uh, blockchain programs that are enabling or designed to enable the traceability and various other processes in the industry? But does the industry need one focused sort of 
process or, or system or, or can multiple traceability programs exist? Look, I don't think it's a matter of it, does it need to be one system or multiple systems. I think it's a matter of uh, do the systems that do pass that finishing line, and there probably will be more than one uh, that reach uh, you know that critical mass and uh, usage by the consumer and the retailer. I think the question is 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 how do they cooperate together, or how do they work together, or integrate with one another to provide the the consumer and the retailer with an integrated solution rather than a bunch of unintegrated solutions that doesn't talk to one another, that don't integrate, and then creates a loss of value for the industry as a whole. So I think that you know there needs to be maybe more cooperation and more integration of different systems that maybe still take some time, and I think maybe we're not there yet, but I think that's the the need of the hour that there. You know, the systems that, that are accepted and do have the most value in the end have a level of integration that at the retail level, consumer level, or whatever other segments or within the industry, outside industry that needs a traceability solution, that they see an integrated solution rather than haphazard a set of mm. different solutions. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, so, so much has happened in the last few years on the, in, this, um, in this area, and I think it's really credit to the manufacturing sector that many doubted. Um, even the companies themselves doubted that it was possible to effectively trace a diamond through the manufacturing process. Um, that they've really embraced this idea, and um, and I think it's another aspect of the COVID environment that is in, is going to accelerate both the need from the or the demand from the consumer and retail level, and also with um, the, com- the the industry's uh, capability to satisfy that demand. Um, for excuse me, um, satisfy that demand for a trace a traceable product, and I think that's something that'll be interesting to see. I, I think when we please God in in a year's a year or two's time, when when we're talking about um in you know how it was during COVID, um I think we're going to see a very different industry, and it'll be interesting to watch from the outside what to what extent these trends. Um, do take hold and or were accelerated by the same um, situation. Yeah, well, um, I can tell you that I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion that we can look back and say how it was during COVID. <laughs> That's definitely yeah, something I'm looking forward to, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Absolutely. Um, well, before we wrap up, I, I did want to ask you about your view of the manufacturing sector in, during this period. You know, Siren is a, is a, is a major supply of equipment like your Galaxy machines and, and various other equipments that are used in manufacturing. So so what are you seeing in terms of manufacturing levels of manufacturing rough to polish and manufacturing levels and sentiment within the part of the market? So I can maybe break it down into into three periods, uh, pre-COVID, during the lockdown, and then uh, we had a period of just over uh, a month and a half uh, or, or maybe even two the manufacturers went back to manufacturing. Up until the last week, where again um, a certain portion of the industry shut down. So, if we look at actually, we were quite surprised with the numbers, and we we're able to get a good statistical view of the manufacturing market due to the fact that, as I said, uh, probably eighty or ninety percent above a certain size of goods go through our technologies. We have close to hundred million diamonds going through our technologies in two thousand nineteen, and that number continues to grow. And so, we get a good picture, statistical picture of, of you know what's going on. And um, after the lockdown, after the manufacturers came out, out of lockdown, we're actually quite surprised within approximately a week um, after coming out of lockdown, manufacturing levels had reached uh, you know, somewhere between, depending on the size range, but somewhere between 40 to 50% of pre-COVID levels or that we saw in January and February. 
And January and February, if you, if you remember, were actually fairly decent uh, manufacturing levels because of the fact that the site in January was, was, was a decent size site, somewhere around uh, $500 plus million. Um, so we saw good manufacturing levels in January, February, and, and we're quite surprised after lockdown that people came out of the lockdown and started manufacturing significantly. And naturally, most of that manufacturing was uh, done on rough that was acquired pre-COVID. Um, so most of the manufacturers actually are until, until today working on, on rough material that they had in their stocks. And I think the biggest question for the manufacturing segment that I'd love to know the answer is, you know, what are they going to do when the rough runs out? And that, that looks like it's going to happen fairly soon. So the stocks of rough that they had prior to COVID, they've been manufacturing at lower levels that rough is going to run out. And the question is, okay, what are they going to do next? Are they going to buy more rough or are they going to wait this out until their polished stock inventories reduce significantly enough for, for them to justify to buy new rough? And I think we're going to see that question could be going to be answered in over the next one or two months. You know, we're waiting for now for the, the industry to get back from the, the mini shutdown that they had last week, which again, manufacturing levels went down 20% of pre-COVID. And uh, we hope that uh, we see in the upcoming days an increase in manufacturing over there to the fact that just today we've seen that manufacturers have opened up the part of the factories that closed down last week uh, due to the, the mini shutdown in Surat. Mm. Um, and I was going to say that's, that's in Surat. I believe they, they've been clo- they've been in lockdown again um, for the last two weeks. I believe, yeah. and I think there's talk about um, them extending it to to um, to the 19th of July. Actually, um, yeah, there's talk actually of, of voluntary extending the lockdown by many of the manufacturers over the last uh, day or two. I mean, we were in very close touch with the manufacturers, and they're yeah, they're talking about you, you mentioned the 19th. I've heard actually even dates further out. And I mean, India. India has um, put in, in place a, a voluntary um, moratorium on importing rough, um, which uh, through the through to the end of July, um, which gives us another indication of, of where where they're holding. But it's it's very interesting what you say about them having enough uh, manufacturers having enough rough to to satisfy their their operations um, to date. And and I agree. I think it'll take um, another month or two before we see. Some improvement, and at some point, at some point, there's you would expect them to start preparing for the quarter when one again would assume that there's going to be some increase in and improvement in consumer demand for diamonds, and um, which hopefully will will filter through to the through the pipeline. There are a lot of hopes and anticipations in there. So I think there are two parameters we actually need to watch very closely. One is, as you said, the uh, consumer demand. You know, how the retailers are doing globally, especially in the US, um, but how retail demand is doing. And I think the second parameter, which is just as important, is inventory levels across the pipeline, whether it's at the retailer itself, whether it's at wholesalers that are in the local vicinity or the national vicinity of the, of the retailers and stock that sits at wholesalers at the manufacturing centers and the manufacturers themselves. So I think, you know, that, that's also a parameter because even once Retail does start, uh, um, uh, you know, ramping up, and 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 retail sales improve significantly. There's still quite a bit of stock in the pipeline. Again, not in all segments, but in many of the segments, there's quite a bit of stock still available. And until that stock works its way through, again, there's less incentive to really ramp up manufacturing to significant levels. And as you've explained through through the last hour, it's just such a dynamic environment as well, with uh, with retailers reassessing how they source goods, what inventory they need, and that has a ripple effect to, to the rest of the of the industry. It's all very interesting to watch, but um, and a very difficult um, 
environment to navigate for many companies, but um, hopefully we'll, things will stabilize soon and uh, we'll return to normal. Yeah, that's, I guess, what everyone's hoping for. And, uh, you know, I think the, the more the whole pipeline becomes more and more integrated, um, whether it's uh, through technology or other methods, I think overall, the, the more efficient it will become and uh, the less of these uh, bottlenecks we're going to have uh, of certain segments of the pipeline experiences difficulties because of a, uh, an issue further down or further up the pipeline. That, that would be an ideal situation. Um, but uh, David, thank you very much for your time and an, a really interesting discussion as always. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Avi. Great uh, being with you and uh, all your listeners. And until next time. Indeed. So um, stay safe and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you.